a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your care for us. We pray for your uh, servant Paul and his continued recovery. Thank you, Lord, for um, the, the wisdom and the quick acting of your church, of the body of Christ, and for the opportunity now to gather together as we study your word. Bless us in these studies, Lord. Open our hearts and minds, not just to, to know and to understand, but to receive and to believe what you would teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Cool. Everybody got a handout for, not the survey handout, but the uh, Bible study handout. Had them up here. Good? Okay. Good. All right. Uh, so I want to start with this. We're going to be looking at the Jubilee year in chapter 25. Need one? What's yeah. Do we have any more around somewhere? Yeah. Okay. Oh, thanks. Um, so we're going to be talking about the, the Jubilee year. Um, does anybody remember this? In the year 2000, it's a long time ago now, but in the year 2000, uh, there actually was a kind of jubilee that was um, affected. Poor nations received debt relief that year. Anybody remember this? Uh, Justin and I was doing research for this. It was like, wow, did not hear about that. I mean, I was in high school at the time, but just looking into debt, not just um, the debts of nations, but just look at American debt. Okay, and most of these numbers are a couple years old, so it's probably even higher now. But Americans hold over 999 billion in credit card debt, just credit card debt. Non-resolving, non-revolving debt or loans total over 2.8 trillion. Total outstanding auto loan debt totals 1.17 trillion. 157 million Americans have credit card debt to pay off. Roughly 63% of American adults carry credit card debt balances. And the average 2016 graduate from college left school with $37,172 in total debt. There is a lot, a lot of debt out there. And uh, I wanted to start just with this question as we think about debt and the forgiveness of debt. How does debt impact people and nations for that matter? But how does, how does debt impact people? What, are, what can be some of the difficulties or downsides with it? Recognizing that sometimes it's seemingly unavoidable, but uh, yeah, plenty. Stress. Stress, okay. Worried about how you're gonna pay it off, sure. It limits what you can do. It limits what you can do because you're not as flexible. There's just the debt has to be repaid. Yeah. Feeling subservient to someone else. Feeling subservient to someone else. The debt is the slave to the to the lender. Yep. Other other thoughts? Yeah, Mary. Oh, sorry. Not being able to retire. Yeah, people pushing retirement off later and later. Uh, because they are still indebted. Not being in control. No, just not being in control. Yeah, Carla. Buddy, especially for ones graduating from college. Yeah. Our son, is, he's been out of his PhD program for 14 years, and he's still paying. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just that niggling thing that's yep. there. It's still there. Yeah, my, my brother, who graduated college um, in, I don't know, more than a decade ago, just recently paid off his debt when we, when we left the seminary. And this has improved, but when I left seminary, we had tens of thousands of dollars of, of debt, of school loans. And so it can, be really, it can be really crippling for all the reasons that you mentioned. And so I find it interesting. I mean, debt seems to be just one of those facts of life, but we might not think, well, this is something that God cares about or has anything to say about. It's just, you know, part of uh, our economic lives. But God actually has quite a bit to say about it. 
And in fact, in, in Leviticus 25, and with the, the Jubilee year, we see how attuned the Lord is to how debt can be um, debilitating, but also how it can affect the flow of the generations, and how his heart is really to see his people liberated and set free from debts of all sorts. So we'll get there, but before we do, we're going to spend some time with Leviticus chapter 24. And I'm going to move a little more briskly than I normally do, but anywhere you want me to, to stop and pause, always happy to uh, linger that, and we'll just we'll get what we get through. Chapter 24. Start with the first uh, four verses here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Okay, uh, anybody recall what this lamp is or what, what's the name that it... Menorah. A menorah, right? A menorah. And it speaks about it um, at greater length also in the, in the book of Exodus. But the first point I want to give you here um, on your handout is keep the lamps lit. Keep the lamps lit. God is adamant about this, that they keep the menorah lit. Now this is a, uh, an old rendering of the menorah, the seven light lighted candles, seven candelabra. Okay? Um, but one thing that I read in, in my research that I found interesting is that uh, the, the menorah in the temple was also made to resemble tree the tree of life and i found that just totally fascinating this notion that god is still if you will keeping he himself is keeping the light lit remember those old commercials for motel six or whatever we'll leave the light on for you with that tree of life connection with the menorah it's sort of like the lord saying i'm leaving the light on for you when it comes to the, the hope of, of paradise regained, of us recovering that tree of life. We're leaving the light on for you. This is the, the, the hope and the promise that we have in the Lord. And um, it comes up multiple times of this notion that keep the lights burning, keep the lamps burning. I really think there's a symbolic uh, significance to this. When you think about it spiritually or symbolically, what do you think could be some of the other connections to be made when God says keep those lights Lit. Keep the lamps lit. What are, are some other biblical connections that you, you think of, too? Yeah, Leslie. We aren't living in darkness. We're not living in darkness, right? Jesus is the light that no darkness can overcome. Yeah, very good. What else? Is it the virgins to keep their lamps yeah, lit? Yeah, right? The, there's the, the wise and foolish virgins to keep their lamps lit. And there's different ways that people interpret that. And what is the oil in that case? I think suffice it to say, God wants us to keep that light of faith lit. Yeah, Court, were you going to add something? If you turn the light out, that's turning your light out to God, and there's no hope. Okay, yeah, if you turn that light out, it's like turning the, the light out to God. And I tell you what, I mean, just thinking about what the outer darkness it's really hard to grasp that. I've talked before about the storm that we endured when we were in Spokane, this windstorm, and it knocked out power for the whole city. And 
you don't really realize how much just ambient light there is normally from streetlights and everything. Um, but to be in a city, a big city, and suddenly have no light anywhere is really quite terrifying, actually. Um, and I was reading about um, Ernest Shackleton, Sir Ernest Shackleton, and the that endurance, and um, they recently found that boat. And but just thinking about them being down there at the, at the not quite the South Pole, but Antarctica in what would be our summertime or wintertime, and you just don't even see any light for three months. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, oh, Northern Lord. Lights. What's that? The Northern Lights. Maybe the Northern... Well, they were down south, though. Is it the Southern Lights? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So the Southern Lights. <laughs> yeah, but still. Still. Uh, yeah, Leslie, were you going to add something? Well, when you're uh, touring mines and they take it yeah. down in the mine and they turn off the lights. Mm. To me, it's oppressive. It presses yes, down. Yes, right. It just, you, you know, can't see your own hand in front of your face, right? Yeah, but it just is very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why you don't go on those trips, actually. Right, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, no thanks. Uh, can we just go on a theme park or something? No. Um, yeah, Hans. Yeah, who's the light for? It's, you know, the don't, you don't hide your light underneath yep. the bushel. Yeah, let yeah. your light so shine before men. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, there's a beautiful line about the Lord's light in Psalm 36. And uh, let's see here. If you want to turn there, Psalm 36 speaks of the Lord's light. It says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. And then this, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. In your light do we see light. So by the Lord's light, then we are able to see light and to share his light with others. So that we're no longer walking in darkness. Yes, Cindy. And a smoldering wick, he will not. A smoldering wick, he will not burn out. Yeah, snuff out. Exactly. So just keeping that lamp lit. And it, it, it seemed to be that even for the Israelites, they understood the symbolic import of this. That it wasn't just a functional sort of thing. Um, Paul, perhaps picking up on this, also says in uh, what's one of my my family's kind of theme verses, Second Timothy one. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Keep those lamps lit. Fan into flame that gift of faith and keep it going. And of course, uh, there's that specific connection in terms of our worship that we have. Um, sometimes it gets called the eternal light or eternal flame, something like that. Now, ours is actually electronic, yeah. uh, or electric. So, so when the power goes out, it's dark. Okay. Um, but having served at a parish where it had to be replaced every week, and there was like these big candles, and every week I would have to climb up, take my life into my hands, and replace it. I understand where we're going with that. The main thing is the symbolic significance. Of it, okay? That the light is always burning. All right. Let's go forward to the bread of the tabernacle, starting in verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Why 12? 12 tribes. 12 tribes, right? Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. 
and you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It's from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So we've seen other issues of, uh, similar to this. Number, number two on your handout, God serves as host to his people. Um, the bread of the presence, or literally the bread of the face, the bread of, of God's face in a sense. I think the bread of the, uh, for the tabernacle, the bread of the presence is another kind of forerunner or foreshadowing of what we have in the, in the Lord's Supper. But what's significant about this here is how it says that while this is offered up to the Lord, um, it's primarily for who? It's for the priests, for, for Aaron and his sons. God is, in a sense, serving as host to his people. He's host at this sacred meal, which he has set there for the priests in order to feed them and to make them holy through eating. We've had lots of occasions to talk about this throughout the book of Leviticus. But this is an um, inversion and a counter to what was commonly the practice among the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, where there would be offered up food sacrifices because the gods were hungry. They needed food. And you think, that just sounds so weird, so crazy. And I would have thought the same thing until I went and um, lived in Thailand, and I saw this as a picture I took, and I would see things like this all over the place. Okay? This is a little um, shrine out in front of somebody's house. And at these little shrines, this is a, a Buddhist practice, you would um, be preparing some food. Fanta was super popular among the gods. I don't know why that is. Um, but I saw that a lot. But it was, you would offer up these, these food offerings um, for, to appease the gods. It was just another way that people were trying to, they wouldn't put it this way, but essentially merit forgiveness from whoever is out there. They were not monotheistic. They didn't believe in a single God the way that we do. Um, but they had some sense that the universe needed to be appeased, and that with food. This is a very ancient and, and pagan notion and idea. But God says, no, it's going to be just the opposite, that instead I'm going to be feeding you. I don't need you. I mean, this is Psalm 50, which we've looked at before. I, I, do I need your, your bulls? No. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine, right? I'm not up here in heaven hungry for sacrifices. I have uh, arranged it such a way that you can receive and be certain of atonement, forgiveness. But I myself do not need this food, God's saying. Go to Luke chapter 6, where there's a, a reference to this with respect to our Lord and his, his ministry. And here he makes a connection with the bread of the presence and also with, with the Sabbath as well. Luke chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what isn't lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God? And took and ate the bread of the presence, which isn't lawful for any but the, the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
Here, Jesus recalling this, this um, Old Testament story, which I forget where that is off the top of my head, but where David had similarly gone in and eaten of the bread of the presence. He's saying, look, now something greater than the bread of the presence is here. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. That he, Jesus, is the bread of life. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he has that prerogative to be able to feed his disciples on the Sabbath. He is the greater David. If David was able to go and eat of the bread of the presence, how much more he and his followers, who now are all part of the royal priesthood. Jesus makes that allusion. It was only the priests who were lawful to eat it. Well, now they're all able to because all are being made priests as those who are, are followers of him. And so the bread of the presence, it's not, a, um, it's not one of the, the major things like Passover or like the Day of Atonement in terms of its New Testament fulfillment. But it is there, and it's another way that we're seeing God, the Lord fulfilling that old, those Old Testament foreshadowings with the, the bread. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time with this, but I was reflecting on thinking, okay, most Americans aren't making food offerings to the gods on their front porch. You very rarely see that in, in America. But what are people offering instead? What are, what are some of the other sorts of sacrifices that people are making to try and appease the gods or whatever it might be out there? Yeah, Esther. Money. Money, yeah. Good works. Well, good works, just generally, generally speaking, sure. Um, you know, with the Final Four this, this past weekend, just another insight into uh, Pastor's High School sports obsession. I remember, I distinctly remember it being the Elite Eight, and Michigan State was going to be playing Kentucky that evening. It was on a Sunday, and being at church and praying, fervently praying, <laughs> Lord, if only MSU can win today. I'll serve in the church. I'll be a pastor. <laughs> You're wondering how I ended up here. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if that's what I said, but I remember doing one of those, I'll make a deal with you, Lord. You ever have those prayers? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they did. Michigan State won, went to the final four. Oh. So uh, there you have it. Go ahead, Leslie. Time. You know, like how much time do we spend on our computer? Yeah. And, you know, the, the cyber gods. Right, the cyber gods, yes. Uh, then there's been research showing that um, people using their phones, it lights up in your brain the same parts of your brain that are activated by worship, by being in a, a worship service. And so you've got your little pocket god. Like, oh, let's see what my pocket god wants from me today. It's a disturbing sort of thing, you guys. I mean, really, really. I mean, yeah, Laura. Well, and also American culture, it's not so much, you know, we're doing this for God. Right. I feel like America's more idols and so it's yeah. really what are we idolizing yes you know and what are we offering <coughs> those idols also? yeah absolutely what are we offering to the idols where people don't would say they're doing it for god but maybe it's because i need to appease the mobs online right <laughs> I, I need to to try and and please other people or whatever it might be um, so it's not the case when you hear us talk about, oh, this is a, a post-Christian society or people aren't as religious, all the, the nuns and so forth. Make no mistake, people are no less religious. They have just moved it to other things that look more secular, right? Um, the Dave Zoll, who is going to be at camp this summer, I think he and I are going to be there the same week. He wrote this book a couple of years ago called Seculosity. Really good book. And it's on just this principle. It's like, there's a religiosity about secular things, right? Oh, people aren't religious, but they're just religious about their politics instead, or they're religious about sports or whatever it might be. Anyhow, all right, let's go on to this next part because um, this is one of those 
things that um, comes up and you always wonder, yeah, what do we, what do we believe about this now? Um, starting with verse 10, and we actually get another little narrative. There isn't a lot of this in Leviticus, but here's another little, little narrative. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name. Notice that, capital N name, Ha-Shame, meaning the name of who? God. God, right? And cursed. And then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith and the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, And they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. All right. Heavy, deep, and real here. You have this guy who gets into a fight, curses the name of the Lord. Then they say, okay, let's hold on. We're going to have a convocation here with with God to see what ought, ought to happen to him. And then God says he needs to be brought out and to be killed, stoned with stones. And then it immediately goes into this section on, I mean, famous or infamous section, depending on your perspective, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Here in this passage, with the story and the following application, God enshrines the rule of equivalence. This is kind of the technical legal name for it, the rule of equivalence, like an equivalent, right? Tit tit for tap. The... the, um, Latin name for it, the legal name for it, is the lex talionis, right? Let's say I never taught you anything. There. The lex talionis, the law of retribution. Now, question for you. Could this ever be good news? Could the lex talionis, this law of equivalence, could that ever be good news? I want you to put yourself into that, that kind of um, culture and, and time and context where... Many times, um, the, the temptation would be for the might to make right. There isn't a rule of law the way that we are, have been accustomed to it. And so it could be the case that, well, you, uh, you killed my animal, your dog killed my sheep, well, I'm going to kill your daughter, right? There can just be an ever-ratcheting up of, of revenge and vengefulness going on and on. God wants to ensure that there is proportionate justice. And we take this for granted today, and people think of this and they hear this, well, eye for an eye, I mean, I see the bumper sticker, eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind, right? Uh, That's good bumper sticker wisdom. But the fact of the matter is, this was a good thing. We take for granted the fact that this law of equivalence 
help to keep a cap on vengefulness, on people going even further. It ensures that uh, something approximating greater justice is going to be done. And so it has these two functions of this lex talionis. One, it limits the scope of revenge, all right? So eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, fracture for fracture, life for a life. Keeps things from just utterly spiraling out of control like the Godfather or something like that. But then two, it treats all life as of equal value. Again, this is something that gets ignored or, or glossed over, but all of life is being revered and honored. He makes it a point to say in verse 22, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Here God is saying, look, all life is sacred. All life matters to me. And so I want to uphold and ensure that especially the marginalized and those who wouldn't otherwise get a fair shake, that they also are going to receive a, a, a proper sense of, of justice. See. Uh, okay, any reflections or questions thus far? Now think of, <coughs> sorry, House, go ahead. It is a, it is a limit. Because uh, and, and, quite often we go off and want more. Yeah. We get bloodthirsty, we right? We get bloodthirsty. It's like, oh, you, you killed my dog. Yes. I'm going to wipe you out. Yeah, right. You know? Right. So <laughs> it, it keeps things in that <clears throat> pr proportionate to the extent that it's possible. Now, one thing that's interesting then, because it, it has this um, explication of the, the lex talionis in the context of the story of the guy who has to get stoned. So God says that right afterward. And he doesn't... He doesn't connect the dots explicitly, but what is that implicitly telling us it means? Or what, what are you doing if you curse God? It's as though you're doing what? Damning yourself. Well, you're, you're certainly doing that, but it's like you're killing God. It's like you're killing God. Because he, he says, life for life. The reason that this man is stoned is because for him to curse the name of God is for him, in effect, to wish God dead, right? And therefore, then his life is taken. I mean, this is deep, scary stuff. But it, I, mean, I think that this is probably in the background also of um, that New Testament verse that gives people the chills when Jesus says, this is the, the so-called unforgivable sin, is what? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And well, what is that referring to? I think what it's talking about is something similar to this, not just in a, 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 you know, a fit of anger or something like that, saying, letting something slip that you shouldn't have, but it's essentially wishing God dead right? and refusing to believe in him because it's a nonsensical thing to say, I wish God were dead, unless you're Friedrich Nietzsche. Right? Um, but in a sense, you're saying, I, you know, I, I refuse to believe in you. I refuse to accept your will in my life. And so that is uh, effectively what we're, we're talking about here. Yeah, ma'am. Just one thing I did want to clarify on, too, is that it does seem to me that in terms of life, there is still there's a separation between human life and animal yes. life. Yes. That, that those two are not Correct. together. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, so animal life is, is honored. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good but it's not held at the same level, right? Yeah, it's not the kind of thing, your cow gets killed, then you can go after the guy. Um, you keep that animal life distinct from the, the human life. They used, now, they used to hang 
horse thieves. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> okay. It's cavalry. Well, yeah. I served on jury duty where yeah. a dog had gone into a farmer's barn and killed his chickens. Ooh. So that farmer killed the dog. Oh, okay. And he was charged by the owner. And it was a jury duty. It was, yeah. Because he didn't kill the chicken, he killed the dog instead of killing the guy's chickens? No, the dog <laughs> killed the guy's chickens. Oh. Who got killed? <laughs> the guy lived. Yes. Chicken and the dogs got killed. Chickens and the dog got <laughs> Jury duties, good times. You never know what you're doing. <laughs> it seems kind of silly, but that was what it was. Yeah, go ahead. This just seems out of place. It just sort of shows up in the middle of it, right? Right, you're talking about lamps and, yep. and bread. bread and doing right. things in the temple, and now we're killing people. It's, it's like, Shouldn't uh, do that, Hans, but yeah, no, yeah. it's... I know, it, do, it, it does seem like just kind of abrupt where there's just this, this sudden insertion. And then you back to the year. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, all, all I can imagine is that it happened in the context of the, of the law being given as it was being delivered. You know, Moses is imparting this about the lambs and the bread for the tabernacle, and all of a sudden a fight breaks out. Like, all right, we need to hit a pause button here. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but it, it, it's a it's fair, fair point. Well, it sticks out to me that if a man curses another man, if I call you out, yes, you know you have that opportunity because you're there in person to, to, you know, stick up for yourself. Right. So God is in effect like, you believe in me? Well, you're gonna stick up for me. Mm, yeah, in that's the right. In the most dramatic way. Yeah. You know? Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, you've got my back. What about uh, uh, there's to be a tendency of judges. Uh, being lenient and actually releasing people from prison. Yeah, right. Right. Um, okay. Well, George's question is, what about judges who are, are lenient and release people from prison on things they've been charged on? I mean, just theologically speaking, um, you know, we believe in both law and gospel, right? Um, that there's both judgment and mercy. Um, I think that, you know, it, it kind of confuses the two if um, you're just kind of given um, a lenient law. Like, I think we need to uphold and honor the law to the fullest extent, while at the same time being able to recognize a place for mercy, not necessarily meaning that, hey, you, there's still consequences to your actions. You're forgiven before God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get time out of, of prison. There's still temporal, what we call like the left-hand kingdom consequences. In the right-hand kingdom of God's rule of, of mercy and grace, you're forgiven, restored before him, but you still need to serve time. So my hunch is, my sense is that it feels like um, a judge might be wading more into that right-hand kingdom, where his job, his duty is to focus on left-hand things. But that's just my, kind of off the top of my head. Think about how Jesus also ramps this up and magnifies it even further in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and this is in Matthew chapter 5. <laughs> Uh, he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So here, Jesus is saying, Look, as far as it goes for you, now you are going to pursue mercy 
even more than, than vengeance. Even recognizing that according to the law, there's a proportionate rule of, of justice that you can seek, as much as it depends on you, opt, opt for mercy, right? Seek to show forgiveness. As Paul puts it in, in Romans 12, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Heap burning coals on your opponents by showing kindness to them rather than uh, giving to them what they've dished out to you. Okay. And this is, and it's in that same context in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about loving your enemies, right? Uh, this, this is hard, but in many ways, this is kind of the, uh, the epitome of, of uh, Christian ethic, yeah. So how is heaping burning coals on somebody? <laughs> I didn't, no, no, no. never understood that. You <laughs> heap, you be kind to them, and so it's, a, it's an allusion to Proverbs, but yeah, you're like, oh, wait a second. I, <laughs> so I need more burning coals. To, but um, no, th- but this is the, the challenge of, as, as Christians, that in our, our individual lives of discipleship, to be people of mercy, and even recognizing, though I could claim eye for eye, tooth, tooth for tooth, I'm not going to pursue vengeance. Does that mean that we don't uphold justice or that there isn't a, a place for that within the life of the Christian? No. With, as, again, as a left-hand kingdom matter, there's going to be ramifications, consequences to, to human actions. But in our, in our hearts and in our interpersonal dealings, we're all going to, always going to seek to lead with mercy and forgiveness. Um, there was this beautiful instance of this uh, a couple of years ago. I wish I could remember the, the names, but um, there was uh, a family and um, the woman had been unjustly killed. And um, in the, in, during the trial, um, the brother who was um, on, on the stand at the time, he just kind of interrupted the, the flow of questioning and he just said, like, as a Christian, I need to speak forgiveness to the woman who killed my brother. She's like, I just want to make sure that I say this. And like, he got up out of the seat. Do you guys remember? I can't remember. Chip, do you remember the names of these? Um, do you recall I'm talking about? Anyway, helpful, Pastor. Very helpful. But he, um, <laughs> he got up out of, the, out of the bench, and he went over and embraced the woman who had murdered his brother, like in the context of the courtroom, and forgave her. Now, did that mean that she wasn't going to go to jail or that there wasn't also you know, ramifications for it? No. I'm, as far as I know, she was still um, convicted. But it was saying, I'm not going to hold this over you, I, but I'm going to release this. Right? I'm not going to carry it. I'm going to let it go. Yeah, Patty. That's, that same type of a case just happened and very close to, to me anyway. Um, after court... The father came out and his son was convicted of murder. Hmm. And the mother of the victim, victim yeah. um, who was killed, yeah. came over to the father and said, George, we loved your son mm. and, and uh, we love you. And it was... Uh, it was broadcasted yeah. over the news yeah. over and over the mercy right. that the mother showed to yeah. the father whose son is going to prison. Yes, right. And showing that mercy. Yeah. And the the mother lost her son yeah. because the son killed her daughter. It's I mean it's it was it, a, it, it's as powerful and as compelling a witness 
there, as there can be, Christian witness. Well, I mean, that was one of the good things that was shown on the, shown on the news. It <laughs> snuck in there among all the other stuff. Christian, and she said, and we'll leave it to God. And we'll leave it to God. That's the Amish are especially good at that. Uh, they've had more Amish. Of I know. accidents and the first thing they'll do is go to the Let's forgive. The, uh, yeah. Yeah, Lessa. Person accused. The problem with not doing this, not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, is the burden is on you. Like, uh-huh. if something, somebody does something to me, yeah. and I don't forgive them, right. it doesn't matter to them. Right. But in my heart, yep. it just, you know, it's going to and, continue and it eating. It's a hold of you and, and just is, yeah. keeps on and on. And You're not hurting anybody but, but yourself. yourself. Yeah, exactly. that's exactly right. Well, that brings us naturally to chapter 25 and the theme of, of chapter 25 of Leviticus. Because now it's going to turn to this question and, and topic of forgiveness in a very practical sort of way. Um, and in terms of the Sabbath and the year of Jubilee. It's a long chapter. We're not going to be able to do justice to everything that's in here. But I want to cover just the big, big picture points from this chapter. First of all, just the first seven verses. I'll read, read it to us now. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired servant and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So here we see how both land and people need rest. It's not just the people that need a Sabbath, God says, but so does the land. And Ben, you could, you could tell me, is this not good farming practice in its own right? Uh, very good farming practice. Yeah. It uh, gives land a chance to rest and... Uh, uh, Cover crops and so forth. Yep. Uh, yield uh, more productive soil. More productive soil regenerates the the nutrients of the soil, uh, and this is just another instance where, <laughs> incredibly, God is way ahead of <laughs> the, the world's understanding and the science and everything else, <laughs> where it gets ultimately gets vindicated. Now I think um, we live in a time where we want to push back against God's ways, right? And where there's that temptation even within you know, the farming world to no rest for the land. Like, how can we just maximize the, the productivity of it? But land, too, the creation itself groans under the weight of these things. And ultimately, it's self-defeating because you're just going to, you know, torch the soil, basically, um, and not care for it the, the way that it ought to be cared for. Um, this is also where we get the idea of a sabbatical, um, where, I mean, customarily, every seven years, um, there's different lines of work that do this. Not every obviously, occupation does this. It's, it's popular in academia for whatever reason. Uh, pastors sometimes will have Sabbaths, camp directors. 
um, <laughs> other lines of work. And it's, it's a good practice. It's a good idea, I think, because otherwise you just can get, you can get wrung out, right? Now, how does God, I mean, what, what would have been uh, when the people hear, okay, on the seventh year, you're not working the land at all, okay? What's the concern going to be of everybody when they hear that? We're going to starve, right? Um, But God says that he's going to provide so much in the sixth year that there is going to be enough, not only for that seventh year, but also for the year afterward. And I think there's also a connection to be made here when it comes to our giving of tithes and offerings to the Lord. Because we think, Lord, if I, if I make these, these gifts to you, I'm not so sure there's going to be enough. Um, and God says, no, to the contrary. When you offer that, um, those gifts up to me, I will ensure that you have more than you possibly need. And I think um, any of us can testify how that is the case again and again and again, how God is always providing. Yeah, that's true. Well, the verse in Malachi, you can bring your full tithe into the storehouse. Yes. And God will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you right. cannot receive. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean money. It doesn't necessarily mean money. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah it's not the kind of, all right, put a little bit more on the offering plate and then just wait for the goods to come in. <laughs> um, but that God is going to give us more than we could ask for or imagine. Right. Yeah, that's right. And it can be a big spiritual blessing. That can be a big spiritual blessing. That's exactly right. All right, I wanted to um, close today by talking just a little bit about this notion of jubilee because um, it is such a beautiful and profound practice. And it's outlined here. It's also discussed in uh, Deuteronomy 15, I believe it is. Um, But let me read for you from um, Leviticus 25, starting with verse 8 here. So it says, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years, the w- word for week was Shabbat. So it was like a week would be a, a Shabbat or a, a week of years, a Shabbat of years. Um, so that'll give you 49. And then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. How fitting that it would be on the day of atonement, right? You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Uh, And it goes on in in this vein. But... um, it's often discussed and debated whether or not the Israelites ever actually practiced the Jubilee. And historically speaking, we can't say conclusively whether this was something that they were like, oh, good story. We're just not going to uh, go ahead and do that. Did anybody keep a track of 50 years? I don't know. What it is. Um, because just imagine how that would just upend everything, right? It just turned things upside down. The 50th year, suddenly debts are forgiven, property is restored to, you would pay for um, your rent or you'd pay for property depending on how far out you were from the, the Jubilee year. There was kind of this, this sliding scale. I mean, it's, it's wild just to think about all the ways that um, this would have gone into to practice. But this is reflective of the Lord's will, that his will is liberty. His will is deliverance and freedom. <coughs> 
That's the heart of Jubilee, and that's the heart of our God. Just a couple things about this notion of the, the Jubilee. The, the term comes from the Hebrew word yobel, which means the ram's horn trumpet. So when it, it's a Jubilee because it's that blowing of the trumpet on the Day of Atonement, initiating and bringing in uh, forth this year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And interestingly, in Isaiah 61, we have this promise and prophecy of the Messiah, or the, the servant of the Lord. And it has a, an illusion, an echo of precisely this, of the, the year of Jubilee. This is Isaiah 61, starting with verse 1. Or it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Okay, so when it speaks of the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's favor, it's talking about, this was a, a phrase that was used to describe the Jubilee year, the Jubilee year. And so what this prophecy is saying is that when the Messiah comes, he will usher in a kind of eternal Jubilee year, that his ministry is going to be marked by liberty, by, by release, by forgiveness. And you probably already know where I'm going to be going with this. What does Jesus quote from and allude to in his very first kind of inaugural sermon in Luke chapter 4? It's precisely this, right? In Luke 4, verses 16 and following, Jesus comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. Now, in Jesus, that eternal jubilee has been initiated and brought forth. Uh, and I wanted to, to close today with a, um, a song from one of my favorite Christian artists, a guy by the name of Michael Card. Any of you heard of Michael Card? Kind of a Christian folk guy. You know, like a, what was the, Peter, uh, what was it? Peter, Paul, and Mary sort of thing, <laughs> Christian dude. Um, but this is a really beautiful song, and the song is entitled, Jesus is Our Jubilee. Jesus is our jubilee. And I put the lyrics to the song on the back for it. So I just wanted to, to close today thinking about Jesus being our jubilee. So I make sure I got the speaker set up correctly. Great video. Lord provided for a time for the slaves to be set free, for the debts to all be canceled, 
So his chosen ones could see His deep desire was for forgiveness He longed to see their liberty And his yearning was embodied In the year of Jubilee Jubilee Amen.